This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The 27, a podcast series from The New European. To support our journalism, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane?
Well, this was the worst uh, tragedy of its kind in the channel. And that's um, according to the International Organization for Migration, which has been recording data since 2014. So since 2014, 166 people have died in the channel or gone missing. Um, and last year in 2021, up until the disaster in November, 14 people had drowned, according to French authorities, compared to seven in 2020. Now, to place this in a little um, context, um, since 2014, around 22,930 people have drowned in the Mediterranean. And in fact, in the week before Christmas last year, 300 people drowned in the Mediterranean. So um, it is a disaster, um, but it's worth bearing in mind that this is a problem that extends well beyond the channel and the desperation of people is seen in other areas of the world as well. And of course, many of the people who end up in North in France will have made those similar dangerous journeys across the Mediterranean, across the Aegean Sea. Yes, and to put it into context, actually, um, you know, the numbers are here, the numbers of people trying to cross, in terms of 28,000 trying to cross, um, it's dwarfed by the numbers trying to cross into uh, other places like Italy and Spain, but also the number of people who seek asylum here um, is minuscule compared to what's happening elsewhere in the world. You've got uh, 26 million refugees registered in the world at the moment, and you know, 4 million of them in Turkey, millions are in Syria and, um, uh, sorry, in Lebanon and Jordan. And um, so in terms of numbers, a tragedy is terrible, um, but the problem, the crisis that we're being told is, is just, it's not a crisis, not in terms of the numbers coming here. The world has a much bigger problem with, if we can call it a problem, um, with refugees and how to welcome them and what to do with them. And um, I think that's just where, worth bearing in mind when we hear all the rhetoric about everyone coming here and you know, flooding the um, borders. I think this builds a lot on what uh, Suna was just saying there about the numbers and the relative numbers in the UK. One of the reasons why this cannot be dealt with in a humane and sensible way in the UK is because the politicisation of the arrival of people to the UK. It is something that since 2012 and since uh, former Prime Minister Theresa May brought in the hostile environment policy, that is how this has been tackled and the clue is in the name. This is not, these are not governments that have tried to understand what is driving people to move. They are not interested in that because that does not work well with their voters and bear in mind that we had the rise of Nigel and his very um, unfriendly rhetoric towards anyone who is not um, born in the UK. So I think the problem has to be placed in that context and then the policies develop from that arena. And so we have these hostile policies and, you know, um, Home Secretary Priti Patel is the latest incarnation of this hostile policy, the hostile policy making. And we saw recently um, the, the crazy ideas of um, using the Navy to turn back boats, all of which uh, these ideas are in violation of the rights of uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And I think, Suna, when you did your piece, you also um, looked quite deeply into the policies um, relative of the UK and relative to other countries. Yes, it's, I mean, it's an absolute mess the world over, to be honest. Um, in terms of focusing on the UK, there's been the hostile environment policy and also shutting um, 
the road route, um, which you, know, you don't want smugglers to be encouraged to take people across the road, but then you, you make sure that they take people in the water, which is much more dangerous. Um, and there's also been the various refugee resettlement programmes that have been very, um, they've been trumpeted, um, and you might have heard the government say, we've got the best refugee re resettlement programme in the world, which isn't exactly right. Um, but um, they're very narrow, they're very targeted, but they don't apply to people like this. And um, even when they do come in, because they're narrow and they're up and down, there's usually country specific, you have so the Syrian programme, and then that's shut and everything goes away. And then you start again with the um, Afghan programme, which, by the way, hasn't actually started properly. They've got in the Afghans that have been um, evacuated from Afghanistan, but they haven't started another, you know, the rest of the policy where they're supposed to bring people in um, once they've, you know, people who've escaped from Afghanistan. So there's a lot of stop start. There's a lot of sort of disingenuous messaging that this is all happening really well, but there's not really any thought to how can we smooth the path to people who uh, to at least they want to try to claim asylum. They probably have a claim. You have to get them here safely if this is the only way to let them claim asylum. And if they, if you don't want them to claim asylum here, then you have to find a humane way of allowing them to claim asylum near where they live at their embassies or whatever. And what is not a humane way is um, what's being trumpeted again by uh, Pretty Patel, and that is to put them in um, offshore resettlement centres. You know, they're talking about Rwanda, Ghana, Albania, all these countries that have said, no, we're not having them. Um, and that's modelled straight out of Australia's, um, frankly, appalling policies. And Australia has been taken to the International Criminal Court six times for crimes against humanity for its immigration policies, its asylum policies, which um, Priti Patel and the government want to copy. And um, what they've done, what they did in 2012 was um, start this offshore relocation policy, so an offshore uh, processing policy. So um, anyone who arrives is sent straight out to Nauru or Papua New Guinea in the Pacific Ocean into detention centres. And um, then they are supposedly processed, but the reality is they just tend to just stay there. There are people who have been there for a decade. And um, alongside that, they started later pushing people back in boats because they realised the first time they started this offshoring policy, the number of boats didn't increase. I mean, they didn't decrease, they actually increased. And um, so then they started the boat pushback policy, which is also on um, the government's radar here. And that is um, particularly inhumane. Um, they flush people out um, when they're coming in boats, they push them back, um, which is quite dangerous. It doesn't matter whether they've got pregnant women, babies, disabled people, all kinds of people on the boats who are vulnerable, old people. They all get pushed back and then they get sent off to Indonesia with just enough fuel. And that is not a good policy, not a humane policy. It's been criticised widely, um, called illegal by the um, UNHCR. And it's, um, it's a it's a very ugly policy and you have to do that to stop them because actually what has stopped the Australian um, asylum seekers to Australia has generally been this pushback, whereas the offshore resettlement didn't really work. It's costing them now about 800 million Australian dollars a year to keep the 200 odd people who are still in asylum, um, who are still uh, in the detention centres in Nauru, Papua New Guinea. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't work because so so because it doesn't work, they stopped it two years after they started it, which is, I don't think, is on the radar across here. So they, they opened it in 2012. They stopped in 2014. The people in detention on those islands are tend to be the legacy 
detainees who don't really have any, there's no real plan to resettle them into Australia. There are also detainees in Australia, as we've seen from the Novak Djokovic uh, deportation saga, um, and they're put in these hotels um, as the one uh, Djokovic went in, and um, they don't really, they, they just left there really. Um, they've had maggot ridden food as far as the reports from Australia go, and um, there was one uh, represent, there's one refugee there who's, or asylum seeker there, who told the media, you know, I've been here for nine years, I came here when I was 15. I've not committed any crime. Rapists have got out earlier. And the only thing you want to know is what I think about Djokovic. So they're ignored, they're pushed about, they're completely distressed. Um, so that's a policy that Britain wants, <laughs> but um, it's not unique to Australia. You have uh, Denmark, surprisingly, you know, you think sort of bleeding heart liberals in Scandinavia, but Denmark has actually legislated to offshore its asylum seekers to Rwanda. It's not started yet. Um, I understand that Norway is waiting in the wings trying to see if that's a good idea. Um, Sweden has hardened up its own asylum policy and restricted the kind of visas and permission permits that it gives, although it has, it does as far as I know, have um, a humanitarian visa process where you can apply from abroad to an embassy, which is a good thing. Um, and then you go further afield, you know, the European Union, um, has it's hardened up because when um, the refugees came, the Syrian refugee came in, refugees came in 2015, 2016, um, some countries like Germany and Sweden did take in lots of refugees. I mean, Germany took more than a million and has settled them quite well. And um, Sweden is a much smaller country, took the highest per capita, I think. But a lot of other countries refused to take part and share the, you know, distribute the refugees across the block. So they had a real shock then when a, a small number of countries had to deal with everybody. And that has led to a real hardening of their policies. And they can be quite brutal. I mean, they have you know, agreements with Libya where, um, the, uh, where the Libyan Coast Guard is effectively the EU border guard. And they're, they're pretty brutal. And you have awful stories of their um, detention centers where people who want to come to Europe are just pushed back from the, from the coast and then put in these centers and they might die, they'll be tortured. Some of them get sold in, uh, in slaves. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, so then you've also got the camps in Greece, which the EU have sort of, it's almost institutionalized. You know, you, you go to Greece trying to claim asylum in the EU and you just get shut in a detention center and you can't blame Greece just for that um, because no one else is helping them. Um, so uh, you've got places like you know, Japan and South Korea, really rich leading nations. I think Japan took in 47 asylum seekers last year and South Korea's not far off. They went the South Korean took in Afghan refugees. They had to pretend that they were special, specially skilled people so that the public didn't get upset about the fact that they were taking in these Muslim refugees. The US we know about even, um, under Joe Biden, who's tried to relax the policies and massively increase the number of resettled refugees they're going to take. He's promised up to 200,000, but they have deals with um, South American countries, which mean that they have to stay out of the country while they seek asylum. And then they're at the mercy of some quite um, you know, brutal border guards sometimes. So the entire world has a problem with this. And, um, and all, there's a whole lot of refugees coming through and the policies are not joined up. So 
um, it's going to be a real problem in the future unless they all get together to solve it. So I think, you know, Britain is not being great. France, um, in terms of just letting them go, not, not really, you know, finding a solution to them is not great. But you also find that, as, as you said, Clara, the, um, the politicians are not, um, are not keen on solving it because it's much easier just to carry on with all the rhetoric. It, it seems to get a lot of populist vote. And it does seem to, the rhetoric does seem to be worse. But if you look back, you find that even politicians who are supposedly more um, tolerant, who are quite happy to let in asylum seekers who want to help them, um, are afraid or have just not managed to make, they, they don't make the argument in favour of allowing um, these people to resettle because they're just worried about the political fallout. So it's a failure of the populists and the hardliners, but also a failure of the people who were in position of, of power before. And um, they haven't uh, done anything about it. There are some good examples. So you have um, a lot of volunteering now, a lot of um, rural, uh, rural communities that actually want refugees. I mean, they've had them in, in again, Scandinavian countries. In Italy, whole villages are bringing in refugees, families to help revive their farming villages. Um, Spain is looking at a similar project. You've got community sponsorship here in the UK, which is very small, um, but there are communities who really want to help. Um, there's also the Kent um, refugee action groups who are, you know, <laughs> they hear of refugees and they don't bring out the sort of something to stop them storming the barricades. They bring out uh, blankets and food um, in the US, you have it. Canada's sort of community rest resettlement program is also um, a pioneering program. So you have to have countries um, looking at these policies and trying to coordinate and get the best ones out if you want a situation to improve in any way whatsoever. The French authorities um, had picked up uh, the survivors, um, Mohammed, Issa Umar and Mohammed Cheka, and they had interviewed Mohammed Cheka and Darmanan was actually retracing his journey um, from Kurdistan. So the fact that he went to Damascus and from there to Minsk and to Poland and to Germany, where he claimed asylum, but then was placed in a hostel. And so um, he decided to make a break for France because he wanted to come to the UK. And Darmanan um, retraced this route and then broke down the costs of the journey, um, saying that he had spent in total about 10,000 euros to get from uh, Kurdistan to uh, to the channel. And then that included the cost he paid the smugglers to go across the channel. And essentially, his tone was somewhat... Um, a little dismissive in the sense that he said um, for less than 10,000 euros, Mohammed Cheka believed he could have a better life. And this sort of goes to the heart of some of the misunderstanding and the way in which politicians go for stereotypes. Because, in fact, Mohammed Cheka had told um, Kurdish television that the reason he made the journey was to earn money from, uh, to treat his uh, sister who was very ill and he couldn't make the money at home. And he wanted to be able to pay for her to go to India to get treatment for her illness. Darmanan did not mention this at all. And yet it must have come up, one would have thought, in any interrogation that the French authorities um, would have carried out. And again, it's that um, diatribe that um, says that people who come to the West are 
simply looking to make their lives better. Now, personally, having spent quite a long time living in uh, both West and East Africa, I can understand why people want to make their lives better. But also, there's something a little even deeper than this. Um, first of all, getting getting the story wrong. I mean, unfortunately, that's what politicians do a lot. But also, it's uh, a lack of understanding, a lack of comprehension of the responsibility of richer nations not only because of their interventions militarily in some of these areas and some of these regions that led to people living difficult lives, but also if we look at the UK, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric is always too many people are coming, too many people are putting a burden on our services. It's always about pushing people away. But never is it discussed that, for example, in 2021, the UK decided to cut international development age from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5%. And they did this because apparently we cannot afford that, um, that money anymore for, for other countries. But that is... In fact, something that will cause more people to undertake these dangerous journeys, that is a responsibility that countries that frankly were colonial powers in many of these regions still bear, but it is not brought into the discussion, it is not seen as one of the elements in this story. You're listening to The 27, a podcast series from The New European. To support our journalism, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. What we did learn um, while um, reporting this story is quite how um, embedded these networks are uh, along the trajectory of these journeys. So, for example, in Kurdistan, um, there are travel agencies where people can go and the travel agent there will hook them up with a smuggler. Money is paid in almost a deposit form and um then it is released to the smuggler as each section of the journey is completed. So, for example, maybe um, you would give in a lump sum, but when the person gets across, say, the first sea, maybe the Aegean or the Mediterranean, some of the money will be released and then you would continue on the next leg of the journey. So um, these networks are very embedded. A lot of money changes hands. And of course, uh, for governments in the West, this is the area they want people to focus on. They want people to look at these networks and see them as the main cause or the main bad guys, the villains in this story. But it is much more complex. And I think some of the stories you hear from Channel Crossings, for example, where Sometimes um, refugees and asylum seekers themselves have been forced to pilot the boats or maybe somebody, uh, the smugglers get them to the beach, they get them on the boat and then they determine that someone there has some skill in piloting a boat and they will make that, they will ask that person or make that person, there is coercion as well, take the boat across. So it's a very murky situation. This is why a lot of uh, refugees and asylum seekers get rid of their mobile phones before they get to the UK because they are afraid that any data or any calls that are on there might be misinterpreted to make them look like smugglers but certainly the smuggling network is there it does work but you know it's 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 and and the demand is there and it is very firmly embedded in countries but it's not as simple as bad guys versus good guys yes i mean the the smugglers are obviously guilty of a um crimes here but in fact they it is actually a demand led um operation you know, if there were other ways for these people to go they would have gone and uh, 
in, you're never going to stop it if you just focus on arresting smugglers because other ones will pop up everywhere. I mean, they're also probably poor and want something, want ways to earn money. Um, unfortunately, they've chosen this terrible route to it. Um, but even if, I mean, you're never going to quite stop them, but as long as you have, you don't have any alternative, you have people trapped in um, a terrible situation just by, the, just because of accidents, accident of birth, then they will try and leave. If there are no other routes, this is what they'll choose. Well, in the UK, you've got um, Duncan Lewis, the solicitors um, have asked the government for an inquiry, um, a bit like um, Hillsborough, I think, um, where, you, where they try and find out what went wrong, if there was any culpability, what lessons can be learned for the future. If along the way, any um, criminal culpabilities suspected, then the police can decide. It depends on how, how the government sees it, how the police sees it. So it's not going to be an easy um, ride. I don't know if we can say that there'll be any convictions or any, even an inquiry at the end of this. Um, but we'll have to see. Um, in, uh, in France, you've got a different law, which means that um, they can be prosecuted, a bunch of uh, groups, mari maritime groups, um, uh, coast guards, etc., can be prosecuted for involuntary homicide and failing to deliver help. Um, that's a judicial complaint. Um, again, I'm not aware that that's progressed very much since we first started. I mean, I think um, the nature of the accident or the, the tragedy and the, um, the nature of the people uh, doesn't give me, fill me with hope that um, it's going to be processed as a priority by any side. And I think one thing to um, recall is uh, one of the families involved in the UK uh, legal process is uh, Tuana's brother, Zana. And of course, what they want is, a, is justice. And also Zana, of course, does not have his brother's body. Um, three bodies are missing, including Tuana's. They want to understand. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that for the people at home, when they heard that their relatives had reached Europe, and by Europe, I mean, when they heard they were in France, they pretty much often thought and think that they are safe at this point. Um, some of the comments from the relatives was that they can't understand how this would happen in a continent that they um, associate so closely with human rights. Because when you think about where many of these people came from, if we look at, for example, the 20 people who came from Kurdistan, one of the things they're fleeing is political oppression. Now, they think that when you come to Europe, your human rights are protected. So to learn that your family members died in the channel and relatively narrow stretch of water with nobody coming to save them is something that they cannot comprehend. They feel very let down. Their dreams of what Europe meant, what Europe stood for, what Britain and France stand for, this has been completely obliterated. And it's something that's very difficult for them to understand. And I think part of the, the reason of for the legal processes is this. And the Home Office has denied the claims that uh, the Coast Guard failed to respond to any calls from the boat that night. They said there were around 90 calls. 
uh, over that period and that they responded to all of them. And Dan O'Mahony, who's the clandestine channel threat commander, he said that we may never know where the boat was exactly, i.e. was it in French waters or British waters, and we may never know if a call was in fact received from that boat. But in a way, it almost seems like that's an irrelevance. And this is where I can completely understand how the families are feeling, because surely there is a responsibility on people who are parts of rescue services to go and, um, you know, respond to a distress call. Um, And there is a maritime convention that you respond if someone is in distress. And so, of course, the legal cases arise out of this and trying to understand how it is that people who were in such a narrow stretch of water were essentially left to die. And I think Utopia 56, certainly their basis for the case is partly they're looking at if these people were not who they were, would boats have come to their rescue? And just to add, even these people think, yeah, the, the asylum seekers think that even if they don't get what they want, that they will not be in danger or that they ought not to be in danger in Europe. And um, there's a conversation I had with Abdul Sabur, who um, took some of the photos for this piece and also Um, met some of the refugees Um, and he said he asked people all the time why do you go there why do you try and come to these parts of the world and they say well we heard the law was good here we heard that wrong things wouldn't happen to us the uh the the home office uh have denied any claims that the coast guard failed to respond they say they respond to all calls and they received about 90 calls that evening and they they responded acted on all of those calls Um, Initially, the French authorities spoke only of the Mayday call they received. So that was the next afternoon when the fishermen discovered the bodies. However, the French newspaper Le Monde says that there is evidence that um, from phone records that calls were made from the boat to the um, rescue services in, in France and Britain. So it doesn't seem clear at the moment exactly who knew what when and that's one of the reasons for for the legal cases I think. I can't be sure that there will be any lessons learned unfortunately from this tragedy in the current climate. Um, The government rhetoric is still push back, push back, keep them out, smash the smuggling rings, offshore them. Um, The French don't seem to have a hugely changed their attitude um so i don't know if an inquiry is allowed to happen and this is spread a bit wider but at current political climate just i don't think it allows it it's almost like we're having to freeze for a while until things get better and then um then people might be able to address these problems and find better solutions I do think if you look at the uh, Nationality and Borders Bill that is currently working its way through through the British um, Houses of Parliament that does not leave any reason for hope. Um, essentially, it criminalizes people who arrive here illegally. Um, it has been criticized by UN human rights experts who have expressed serious concern about it and say it breaches the UK's obligations under international law. It seriously undermines protection of human rights of trafficked persons, and it increases the risks of exploitation faced by asylum seekers. Now, this is a bill that Prime Minister 
Minister Boris Johnson only this week was touting as he tried to defend himself in the House of Commons as part of Partygate. If this is what they are planning as future policies, then I do not think that there is any hope of efforts to really deal with this this um, movement of people in any empathetic way. And um, we've also seen um, Pretty Patel coming up with ever more aggressive statements on, you know, whether or not people who come here and claim asylum as children are really children. Um, so, so the hostility is still there. I, I, I think it's it's worth noting as well that for part of the Nationality and Borders Bill as well also contains a clause about visas for Russian millionaires, something that some um, peers are trying to get amended. But it stands in stark contrast that we welcome wealthy people to this country as long as they can invest in the economy. And yet, if it is someone who can come and play an important, valuable role in the society, but does not come with money, someone who needs help, who we are obliged to help under international law, then the rhetoric is very different. So I don't think any effort is being made to understand the drivers and the real issues at the heart of this. And as far as I can see, this is going to continue to be politicized. It will continue to be spoken of in the sense of they shouldn't come here when in reality people are coming they will come and you know the UK Europe and uh, other wealthy countries have to step up understand their responsibilities um, and realize that turning people away does not work in this story Twana Kazal many of the others they tried again and again and again to get across the channel so you know more patrol boats even the crazy idea that allegedly came from Downing Street about using a sonic boom to turn back boats which thankfully that idea was um, pushed back by the home office but those are not the answers, but at the same time, are we seeing any sensible discussion in uh, in political circles? Certainly not at this time. And also what is happening in the countries of origin, you know, Afghanistan is in the worst state that anyone who's been there reported there over the past few decades can remember. Um, Kurdistan or Iraq is imploding, ISIS is getting more active. Um, there, are, there are droughts, there are famines, there are civil wars everywhere, aid, is reducing, not increasing. Um, the offers for resettled places are small. So, you know, coupled with what's going on in countries trying to push them back, you've got people in these countries who are who cannot live there or feel they cannot live there. And unless that's addressed, there's no way any kind of boat, um, you know, navy boat pushing them back or sonic wave or whatever other mad thing they have is going to going to solve the problem. I found it uh, a, a very difficult story to write, actually, um, quite upsetting. And um, uh, I have reported before on refugees and displaced people in camps in um, Somalia, in Kenya, in Ethiopia. So I have seen some of the conditions that people flee from. Um, I, I've, I found the idea of the ordeal that they went through in the channel, uh, the, the, the length of that ordeal, uh, very difficult to write about. I found the thought of the hope that all these young people had 
quite difficult and just the injustice as well. I mean, um, so many people come to Britain to work. My own uh, father came here from Ireland in the 1960s to work on the uh, beet farms and uh, construction sites. And, uh, you know, it's sad to see that uh, country that can welcome people and can be a home to people acting in such a hostile and um, aggressive way. Um, so yes, I did. I, I found it upsetting on a lot of levels and the human side of the story, it's not something you want to think about too much, really. Yeah, it is, it's pretty depressing, isn't it? Because you just think, well, my life wasn't like that um, just because of where I was born. And uh, when you talk to them, I mean, I, I was quite struck by Abdul, actually, who wasn't, who was just an observer in a sense, but he was also a, a refugee and his journey. And you just read about it and you, you talk to him about it. And it's, it's just so illogical. And you think every step someone is trying to stop him. And why? Just one, one young man who's worked for, the, um, worked for the Americans and he's just crawling his way past people, you know, blocking him, beating him, sending him back just to get to safety, leaving a country which has been messed up by intervention of all kinds. It just does, it just begs belief. And um, especially and then you look at the, the people and you think, well, I could, particularly I worked in Turkey and I did used to go to Northern Iraq. And I think, well, they could be any of those people who worked as fixers for me, who I met at dinner in Istanbul or you know, the children, you think they could be friends of my children. There's, they're just people that I would recognise in other contexts as I've seen around and to think that this is what they felt compelled to do and that's the end of their story in the channel. It's, it's thoroughly depressing. 27 bodies were recovered from the channel. Up to 33 were believed to have been on that boat. Mariam Nouri Mohammed Amin, 24. Mahabad Ahmed Ali, 32. Rejwan Yassin Hassan, 19. Mohammed Khadir Aula, 21. Zanyar Mustafa Mina, 20. Afrasia Ahmed Mohammed, 27. Bolin Shukur Bekir, 20. Briar Hamad Abdurrahman, 23. Hassan Mohammed Ali, 37. Mohammed Hussein Mohammed, 19. Muslim Ismail Hamad, 19. Sirwan Alipur, 23. Shekhar Ali Pirot, 30. Pishtiwan Rasul Farha, 18. Twana Mamand Mohammed, 18. Heriam Serkhout Pirot Mohammed, 28. Kajal Ahmed Khudr, 46. Hadia Rizgar Hussein, 22. Mubin Rizgar Hussein, 16. Hasti Rizgar Hussein, 7. Survivors Mohammed Isa Omar, Mohammed Sheikha, 21. Nine other survivors were identified by their nationalities only. Nothing is known about the other two. You're listening to The 27, a podcast series from The New European. To support our journalism, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.